Oh, hello there, kind humans. Randy Johns here. Welcome to another episode of You Care Too Much. I am so excited to share this episode and this week's guest, who is a badass organizational psychologist and expert on the social force that is power. I'm talking about Dr. Payal Sharma, who studies power and stress in organizations and teaches at the Lee Business School of Management at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Listen to this. Her current research portfolio includes examining power dynamics in the hip-hop and rap industry and gender backlash against agreeable, vulnerable, and empathetic male leaders. How cool is the juxtaposition of those two realms? Equally interesting, equally important, and I'm here for it. She's been a speaker and consultant on these topics across industries and higher education, and most recently gave a convocation talk for which she was chosen to give based on her unique scholarly prowess and expertise on the subject matter. Dr. Sharma collaborates and brings said expertise to the forefront of ideas around relationship dynamics and personal power, with a bunch of other thought leaders you may have heard of, including Mark Groves and James Silvis. I always learn so much from talking to Dr. Sharma and think you'll enjoy listening to this juicy episode. We talk about power versus powerlessness, post-traumatic growth, and how Dr. Sharma shows up in full caring with a mindset of presence. Right before we get going, I want to take a moment to ask that if you like what you hear, please go ahead and do the gracious favor of heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and giving a little five-star rating, a little subscribe, and maybe even a little review. It helps get the show into more ears of awesome people like you who might enjoy the conversations we have here. Okay. So again, I'm practically giddy for you to hear this conversation with this incredible human. So here you go. This is my smart and kind friend, Dr. Payal Sharma. You, 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 you care too much. You, 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 you care too much. You, 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 you care too much. People who give a fuck, people who give a fuck, yeah. You care too much. Hello, hello. Welcome, Dr. Payal Sharma. I am so excited to have you on You Care Too Much. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm excited as well and really looking forward to talking. This is so fun. I mean, I first heard Dr. Sharma on another podcast and was totally into what she was saying and talking about and studying. And yeah, that's how we got in contact. And so I love what you do. Can you give us a little bit more on your specific projects right now that you're working on? Yes, I would love to. My basic philosophy with my research is I try to understand where people have agency, choice, and control when hard circumstances in their work settings arise. And so a topic that I've become embedded in and feel passionately about is post-traumatic growth. And so for listeners, trauma is conceptualized as a wound or a hurt or a loss that's severe in nature. And in the work setting, since I'm an organizational psychologist, workplace trauma is conceptualized as events that are extraordinary, 
uncontrollable and overwhelming. And easily the pandemic and the police brutality cases that we've been witness to fall into examples of trauma at the societal or collective level. And post-traumatic growth is the idea that after you go through trauma, which can shatter your belief system, in the psychology research, it's called your assumptive worlds. Through post-traumatic growth, you learn to rebuild your beliefs. And some psychologists sort of metaphorically describe post-traumatic growth as the rebuilding after an earthquake because literally your world breaks. And it's different from resilience. Resilience is where you bounce back to what you were accustomed to and you're resistant to adversity. Post-traumatic growth is where you bounce forward because you can never go back to what you were. And so I recently wrote a paper with two amazing colleagues, Rachel Sturm, a professor at Wright State University, and Mary Crossman, a faculty member at Ivy Business School in Canada, on the intersection of trauma and character and how character can actually shape the self-narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves after trauma. And those stories actually are what determines how we grow, if at all. And that growth reflects deep struggles within us. But again, it's transforming your life in a way that you couldn't have even imagined. Oh my goodness. I mean, that sounds incredible. And again, anybody listening, you know exactly why I wanted Payal on this podcast, because I feel like you truly have to care. You truly have to give a fuck to even want to study these things. Yes. Right? Like, so really, why do you care so much? Why do you give a fuck? Where does that come from? And has that been something that you feel like you've always had or is it developed over time or yeah? Yeah. You know, I've always been fascinated by human behavior. So my history thesis as an undergraduate, I studied Latin American history was on a European man who wore a mask and led indigenous people in Mexico. His name was Subcomendante Marcos, and he led the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico. And I think that really represented the early seeds that were planted academically for me to understand how power works. And much of my research is on when people feel powerless. And we actually don't know very much about powerlessness relative to being powerful. And I think the reason I give a fuck and I care so much is I think powerlessness is a universal experience. I think everybody has felt that way. But for me, linking this back to our project that I'm describing, the stories that we tell ourselves can define how powerful or powerless we allow ourselves to feel in our own lives. And I'm a qualitative researcher. And so that means I collect data in the form of stories. And I'm always fascinated by how people describe their realities. And power is a social force. It's in every industry. It's around us constantly. And when I teach about power in organizations, I often find my undergraduate students have never formally thought about power dynamics, but those relationships are what determine so many outcomes, including how much you're paid and how valued you are in an organization. So to me, my purpose on earth is to help people understand power, what it means when you don't have it and how you can gain it to better yourself and the world around you. Oh, I love that. I love, I mean, so you study it, you study the powerlessness and then, I mean, you don't just stop there. You want to help people understand 
how to gain that power. So what are ways that, that you do that? Is that, does that sort of piggyback on the research you do or how do you do that with students? Yeah. Yeah. I can give you an example with trauma. Examples of trauma outside of the organizational space include sexual assault, earthquakes, severe medical problems like cancer, divorce, the death of a loved one, and so forth. Inside organizational landscapes, trauma can include interpersonal like relationships, including if you're abused by your boss or you're bullied and you experience, again, these adverse behaviors from your supervisor or your colleagues. Mm -hmm. So one bucket of workplace trauma is the interpersonal treatment or mistreatment. And then the other bucket is when there's changes in an organization. So a death of a colleague, which is very timely with COVID right now, downsizing, job losses, and so forth. And the way that I explain trauma to people is that it induces feelings of anxiety, depression, and these often are a function of how helpless you feel and how you feel like you've lost control. And it goes back to the idea that you had a a worldview, you had a set of core beliefs, and trauma breaks that. So then the world is no longer predictable or safe, and you have to figure out how you're going to make sense of a traumatic experience. And power, by definition, is about having the ability and the means to influence others and get people what you to do what you want them to do. Hmm. When you go through trauma, you lose that ability to influence anything around you. And so when I teach about trauma and I write about it, I always encourage people to understand first, you know, trauma is a disruption to yourself. And the way it manifests is through intrusive thoughts and images. So maybe people who are listening have had rumination where your mind is constantly replaying like a negative story or you're in a cycle of anxiety. We also know that trauma induces emotional dysregulation, which means you can't regulate or control your emotions. So anxiety and depression, anger, sadness, fear, it overwhelms you. And so when I teach about trauma, I think about the idea of how can you gain control back in your life, which links to a power story. And the first thing you have to do is talk about your trauma. And you don't talk about it with just everybody. The post-traumatic growth research emphasizes the roles of what are called attentive or expert companions. And these are people who can sit down and listen to your story. And one of um, the behaviors they do is they'll pay attention to if you say something about where you learned from your trauma, and then they'll point it out to you. And a core premise in post-traumatic growth research is that trauma is never good. There's no silver lining to any of the examples I've outlined but trauma happens. So then what can you do after that? Mm. And the people that tend to experience post-traumatic growth and feel like they regain a sense of self and control is, are the people who enlist the support of others they can trust. And these again are expert companions who are listeners. They don't have to be therapists. They can be, they can be coaches. They can be family members, colleagues, but their job is really to help you redefine and reframe your story where you felt like you lost control. Oh, that's so good. That's so good because, right, I feel like there are so many times, you, you know, you, you're feeling that way or you're in the middle of trauma and you talk to somebody and and maybe they're in their own trauma, right? And so it becomes this like vicious cycle of like just sitting in it or not finding those growth moments or the ways to move past it. And that can be dangerous, right? So that's so cool to think about it that way. Yeah. I heard a quote. um, It was from a book I was reading. So a professor is the source of it. He says, why would I waste this trauma on going back to who I was, which I love because that's so telling about how you can 
change your life after something that felt like it disrupted and broke your life and your sense of self. And trauma really reveals, I think, character. Like people talk about grief and crisis doing the same thing, that it really reveals character. And the benefit of trauma is that it can help you understand that you're vulnerable, but that without vulnerability also comes strength. And so again, I encourage your listeners to think about if they've gone through hard times, what are the stories they're telling themselves? Are they talking about their strength and their ability to learn and move forward? Because I think that's the difference between feeling stuck in your trauma and being able to grow from it. Mm-hmm, for sure. And so then going back to why you care so much. So clearly, okay, undergrad, you already cared. Before that, like, where do you come from? Where did you grow up? What have you always had this sort of like empathetic internal self or where do you think that comes from? I mean, you could be doing a bunch of research and making a bunch of money and like only caring about yourself working for some large corporation, right? But you're choosing to to help people with your research. Yeah. I was born in India and then I was raised in the Midwest for the first about eight and a half years of my life. And then my family moved to Southern California and I was there through my formative years, so all the way through college. And then after college, I went to graduate school in the Midwest on the East Coast. My faculty positions prior to UNLV were up and down the East Coast corridor. So I've kind of lived all over, minus the South and the Pacific Northwest. And I remember when I was a child, you know, I always noticed when there were situations of like cruelty to animals. Like one of my philosophies is I don't, I don't have any products in my home that are tested on animals. And I try not to buy products made of leather just Mm -hmm. to be sort of an educated and informed consumer. And some of my friends know if they consume meat, it's not that I mind if you eat meat. I think it's important to understand how your food is sourced. So that's kind of a backdrop of my value system. I'm not really sure where it came from. I just remember you know, doing research as a junior in high school about cruelty and animal testing with makeup products and making that decision back then to be more thoughtful about what products I was purchasing and trying to use my consumer power in that way. And I think as a qualitative researcher, my brain is wired to listen to people's stories. And it's always important to me that people feel heard. And some people will say in conversation, I'm not always going to agree with you, right? But there's a difference between disagreeing and having the other person feel like you're listening to them. And to me, that's such a central value of any interaction or relationship that I enter. And I think when people feel voiceless or they feel like they're not being heard, that's what triggers stories around loss of control, feeling as though you're powerless. And that's that's kind of the backdrop to, to what I study. One of my students the other day was saying how they were talking in a group about me and they were saying how comfortable I make them feel in the classroom because so much of my teaching is around dialogue. And I tell my students every semester, I learn from them as much as they learn from me. I mean, I come in as an expert and I use research as a platform to teach from. But to me, the greatest gift is to exchange in a really interesting conversation where you learn what the other person's reality is. And I think that guides so much of the work I do. And, you know, if, if you have gone through a hard experience like trauma, you might feel like you don't have a voice. And so then my question becomes, how can you not stay stuck in that story, but rewrite it and refine 
or regain your voice along the way. It's funny, I just got an email today from a local nonprofit. I had signed up to explore volunteering for a rape crisis center, and it's not the right time for a number of reasons, but I'm hoping to do that in January, just because I'm so fascinated on how you help people move past such a traumatic experience and really own their like survivor identity. So I guess I'm realizing talking to you that this value system embeds every part of my life. You can't talk to me without power and control and trauma coming into the conversation in some way. Totally. That, that makes, that makes sense. Like if it's your, your core values, then that's going to inform everything you do in your life, which kind of reminds me of a different conversation we were having at one point about how your work and, and the power or that loss of power infiltrates your entire life. Right. I think we were talking about your demons don't stay at home. Right. So, so you have trauma personally that can affect your professional life that can affect your romantic life. So many things, right. So if values, good, awesome, like wonderful, empathetic values can do the same thing. Like, wow. I'll give you an example. So Mark Groves actually, and I had a call recently and as some of your listeners may know, and you're very well versed in his work, he talks a lot about attachment theory. So because I'm an organizational psychologist, I think about how attachment theory impacts leadership processes, for example. And attachment theory, as some of your listeners may know, reflects your attachment to your primary caregiver. And the classic research from decades ago suggests we form secure, anxious, or avoidant attachment styles. The fascinating part is that there's empirical data suggesting that if you grew up with one of those three styles, it predicts the way you lead and connect with your followers. Mm -hmm. And so it's about romantic relationships, but to your point, the way we show up outside of our professional lives is also determining how we show up in our careers. So one quick example, avoidant leaders, because of how their brains are wired around themes like support and self-worth, they're more likely to be much more task-oriented and they shy away from relational styles of leadership. They don't want to demonstrate empathy, which we know is absolutely critical in leadership and so relevant today with everything going on in the world. A secure leader, by contrast, will be more relational, will talk with their followers, will be receptive to hearing about their followers' emotions. And you can imagine that matches can be quite functional or not between leaders and followers. So anxious followers paired with avoidant leaders, that is not an optimal mix. Because all it's going to do is resurface the wounding that happened when you were a baby. And by the way, childhood abuse or improper attachments, that is out of your fucking control as a baby. That is not something you chose. You did not pick your family. But when you become an adult, you have a responsibility to heal the wound. It wasn't inflicted on you by choice. But now as a leader, if you're responsible, I get so intellectually mad when I hear about leaders who are abusive, for example, because I'm like, own your shit. Go Mm -hmm. back and figure out who wounded you. Was it mom? Was it dad? You didn't deserve that. You didn't choose that experience. But hurt people hurt people. And you're passing forward your trauma in your work setting and you're leaving relational roadkill along the way. And so Mark Groves and I have been talking about doing a collabo in various stages and helping to train leaders to understand attachment theory so that they're cognizant of the implications of how they're leading and how they're attaching a knot to their followers. What's really interesting is some researchers in my field have talked about how more and more employees are looking to their companies as families. 
And we spend so much time at work, or we did, right? The US Department of Labor once estimated we spend more than half of our waking hours in this country at work. So a lot of what's happening in the organizational space is mirroring family dynamics. And that can trace back to a lot of these attachment issues that you know, most of us might identify with. I heard a statistic that said, by the way, more avoidance are in the dating pool because they can't attach. And so they just keep coming back for more. And so if you've ever had an interaction with an avoidant romantically, know that statistically the odds are stacked against you because secure people attach, right? They're able Mm -hmm. to find a partner, have a meaningful connection, and then explore that relationship. I don't know what the statistics are on anxious attachment folks, but the avoidance just keep coming back because they can't figure it out. And if you can't figure it out in your romantic life, you're probably not figuring it out in your professional life. Oh, for sure. And that is good. Okay. Good to know. I'm taking note of that. Mm. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So many awesome things. So many awesome things you just said. That collab I'm definitely going to want to hear more about that. That sounds incredible because I feel like we've all been, we've all worked in wonderful situations. We've all worked in toxic situations and that has to do with people. Like it's not just like a company is nothing without its people or organization is, you know, makeup of the people. So for sure, people bring in their trauma. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. I'll also tell you a little bit about um, a research project I've been working on. It's in a much later stage today than it was a few months ago. It's about exploring gender backlash against male leaders. And so the premise is that research suggests that men who are leading and are agreeable, which is a personality trait and fixed, more or less, empathetic and vulnerable are penalized in economic and social ways. So they might make less income, they might be less likable. And by the way, these negative outcomes are a function of both men and women responding adversely to the male leaders I'm describing. And so I've been thinking a lot about this because I read this paper recently, it was written in 2000, and it's on how health is gendered. And it basically talks about traditional masculine norms that little boys learn from infancy. And so little boys are taught by their parents to not express emotion. If they do talk about their feelings, they're socialized to talk about anger, definitely not sadness. Mm -hmm. Little boys are also taught that they shouldn't ask for help or demonstrate dependence on anyone else, especially their parents. And my favorite statistic, the year this paper was written in 2000, three out of four Americans, Randy, said every little boy should grow up having a few fistfights under his belt. And what you see as adults is that some men experience higher levels of depression, anxiety, psychological distress, as we call it, when they're required to conform to traditional masculine norms because it's not convergent with their values or their beliefs, but they're punished if they don't do so. We also know that men who conform to traditional masculine norms tend to report you know, higher numbers of sexual partners, for example, and you can think about gender dynamics. And then this paper also discussed how men have more health problems than women, but it's underreported because men don't go to the doctor because you can't Mm -hmm. admit to pain because then you're a sissy or you can come up with whatever vulgar term you want to describe a man who admits that he's hurting. Mm -hmm. And now think about the implications for emotional or relational dynamics inside or outside of the organizational space. Seriously. And, and not just like physical health, right? Mental health is huge with this. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. How it's so true. Interesting. So is that is that the the latest thing that you I guess like the thing that you I'm I know you care a lot about a lot of things, which is what makes you amazing. But is that like the latest thing that like you really give a fuck about you're digging into and you're learning yes. about and yeah. I've been joking that I feel as though I'm a growing expert on men and some women will hear about the research I'm exploring and they wonder why I don't study female leadership. And I'm a woman of color in a business school, which is typically a white man's world. Mm -hmm. But my perspective is that it's not binary. It's not either you study female leaders or male leaders. We need to understand both. And the men that I'm describing, the agreeable, vulnerable, and empathetic leaders, they're often the advocates for other marginalized parties like women and people of color. So there's a downstream effect if we understand how these male leaders that I'm describing are experiencing the social system of their organization. And so my research is starting to move in a direction of how can we help these male leaders navigate the politics of their organizations. And so one recommendation is for men to reflect on their values and then try to find industries or organizational cultures where they fit. It's very difficult to change a culture, obviously. So mm -hmm. that's not what we would advise. But a really interesting strategy that my co-authors and I are thinking about. So one of my co-authors told me a story. There was a CEO recently. I don't know company or industry, but it was a man. And he learned to strategically frame when he talked to his employees as being supportive, but he wasn't being sensitive. And if you think about the optics and the signaling around that language, it traces back to gender stereotypes and social roles. We want men to be agentic, assertive, confident, self-focused. Women are communal. They're other-oriented. They're caring. And it breaks down to men being providers and women being homemakers. Mm -hmm. And so for this CEO, it's a liability if he comes across as sensitive, but it's an asset if he comes across as supportive. So a lot of what I think I'm realizing in my research is men have to manage impressions and messaging around these feminine behaviors that we all actually want in our leaders. Like there's data to suggest we want our leaders to be compassionate, mm -hmm. but the precision and the word choice that these male leaders use to describe their behaviors can frame the way others respond to them. Wow. Whoa, that's a lot of energy going into that. Is that, I mean, does that kind of go back to all of the power stuff though, right? That you're talking about that if they understand and are comfortable in their own power, then maybe it's not so weird or hard or the way they frame being sensitive is almost cool, right? Like if they sort of change the conversation into those things being valued because they're setting that bar, but that's yeah. tricky. That's like, that can be like a, a big chasm to leap, right? For sure. And I think for these male leaders, your point is well taken they have to feel grounded and centered in their value system and understand their own worth and their own esteem because changing who you are is exhausting. And so, and we don't want these leaders to not be empathetic or vulnerable. That's not the message, mm -hmm. but they have to understand how to present who they are and know their audience, right? That's such a central message to any power conversation. Someone else was also brainstorming with me recently, and they were saying that Male leaders of the like that I'm describing can strategically be empathetic and vulnerable in one-on-one -on -one conversations, so private settings, but not publicly, because the cost of doing those behaviors publicly is higher. And so I think the message I always give to my students in my power classes is you have to be prepared. Like getting caught off guard with this 
like set of dynamics is really crappy. And then you mm -hmm. might get paralyzed and you might stumble, but thinking through some of what I'm describing can help you be proactive and manage a situation before you go into it and hopefully have it work out in your favor and you'll increase your influence and control as a result. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's huge for so many reasons. I mean, most, I mean, the thing that I keep, I can't stop thinking about is one, obviously I care about these, you know, male leaders or men in, in the workforce that are not getting to be themselves, or if they are, they're not being recognized for, you know, those, those are valuable skills. Those are valuable characteristics. Yeah. But you're so right. Like, of course that affects all of the women too. That affects everybody. This is, maybe it was you who I was talking to about this, that really patriarchy is not good for anybody, right? Nope. Like, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, because I can tell men you, are. Um, oh, go yeah, ahead. Some research findings that reinforce this in a very like disturbing way. So there's research on fathers who choose to either stay at home with their children or to take parental leave. There's one study that says if there's four groupings of parents: stay-at-home mothers, stay-at-home fathers employed mothers and employed fathers, the parents that get the worst reception in terms of respect and any kind of positive regard are the stay-at-home fathers mm -hmm. because they are violating gender norms and most people think that they lack the skills to caretake for their children. So what does that send as a message to any father who wants to make that investment? Then there's another study that I had read and it said when fathers ask for parental leave, the general perception is that these fathers are poor organizational citizens, that they're not career oriented and they're poor workers because they're prioritizing a domain that is not traditionally masculine and fits with our gender stereotypes. And so any man, by the way, or woman that behaves in atypical ways to their gender, the research term is a gender vanguard or a gender deviant. And the reason that we as a society don't like deviants and vanguards in this way is because they're forcing us to think harder. And I, when I read this research, I was thinking, goodness gracious, God forbid we have to think harder and revisit our stereotypes and our biases. I actually have an experience with this myself. So one of my favorite guest speakers ever in my leadership classes is a gentleman named Eric Nixick. He's the manager for Randy Couture's UFC gym, Extreme mm. Couture here in Las Vegas. And when Eric came to my classes last semester, he talked about how he cries and I was surprised. And later on, colleagues have pointed out to me, that's my own bias, right? This is an industry of organized violence. Why is Eric crying? And Eric is probably one of the most phenomenal human beings I've ever met. Like he and everyone around me knows how much I respect him as a leader and a person and a father and a husband. But he talks about, he cries if there's a very severe loss, right? I mean, this is like literally blood, sweat, and tears that mm -hmm. his fighters are devoting in the cage. And he's talked about how he'll cry if a fighter chooses to work with a different coach. And again, this is probably a man who works in the most masculine industry I can think of. Um, and he's empathetic, he's vulnerable, he's emotionally intelligent. And that's exactly the kind of male leaders I think we need more of. Oh my gosh. Yes. When I hear that, I like, there's a little dance that happens inside of me because you never hear it. You never hear it. And even more, I mean, it's even more impressive 
that he just told you, that he just communicated that and expressed it because he could do that in secret, right? But that's not helping anybody. And his fighters know he's devoted to them. I mean, he's coming to my class next week again as a guest speaker, and the topic is motivating employees. And he's probably one of the most thoughtful leaders who sits down to really understand what pushes fighters buttons. And there's, you know, trauma is not like unexpected in a lot of these fighters backgrounds, unfortunately, but I encourage leaders everywhere to make that investment and understand how can you really help your employees rise to their best potential. And it's the leaders who are willing to talk about the harder things and talk about emotions, which not everybody is, but it's really the pathway, I think, to a deeper connection in the work setting and in our lives. Like the other day I was listening to a podcast by Brene Brown and she talked so much about how, you know, vulnerability involves risk. And I think so many people get shut down by the idea of taking a risk, but I always say you should take a calculated risk in your relationships and you can do that thoughtfully and gain trust and build rapport. And I really think, again, that's the gateway to these connections that we all, I think, crave and and we know psychologically and physically benefit from. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Calculated risk. Yeah. Because I mean, you don't grow without taking a risk and vulnerability The thought that vulnerability is truly strength and not weakness is, I feel like, a secret superpower. And I hope it becomes like a, I hope it becomes like a extremely well-known, you know, superpower that people are tired of hearing of at some point (laughs) because more people are being vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, for me, a cornerstone in any meaningful relationship that I have is if we lean in and we connect. Again, you don't have to agree, but you have to reveal yourself. And somebody once told me, there was this expression I learned, when you keep walls up, you stay guarded. And when you stay guarded, you don't let the good stuff in, like joy and connection and love, and you keep the bad stuff in, like fear and hopelessness and despair. So it's like the bad stuff doesn't, you know, have the opportunity to breathe or experience light. And then you don't, you don't let in any of the good stuff. So then you stay shut down. Well, when you stay shut down, you never connect. If you never connect, what does that mean about like your ability to grow after trauma, for example, hearkening back to the earlier part of this. So I think we all have to think about the stories we tell ourselves. And the other thing I realized lately is we have to think about how we justify our stories too, because Mm. if you're avoidant, for example, you might justify your story by saying, I don't want to take the risk or, or so forth. But again, calculated risks and risks are different. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a game of chess versus, you know, a slot machine, right? Like you're not just throwing your money in and like hoping you're figuring out like what move to make because you don't want to just sit there and let the moves happen to you. Right which is a power story, right? Because if you lose control and moves happen to you, you feel like you've lost that ability to write your own story and, and make those moves. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. So what is your mindset that you personally have to keep to care this much and keep doing the work that you're doing? Because especially when you're working with, I don't know, I, I would think working with trauma or, or things like that, that if you are an empathetic person, that can also like, you can maybe take that on 
and instead yep. of being on the outside of it and and learning from it. So what kind of mindset do you have to have every day in life, in work to keep your purpose? Yeah, I realized that recently I have a tendency to let my emotions that are negative consume me, which is really not fun. And so I, as of late, have been adopting a mindset to try to be much more present in the moment because that helps reduce the idea that my emotions consume me. So if I'm experiencing joy, I try to really lean into that and to chase happiness. My mindset, I think, reflects I'm very tuned in to how I feel and I'm tuned into my body. So I had a really stressful week for a variety of reasons last week. And, you know, some people use substances to soothe and numb. Some people engage in promiscuous sex. Others do A, B, and C. We can come up with the list. Mm-hmm. I go to the bike. I go to cycle and it's Love 45 it. minutes of therapy or church. Shout out to Mateo, one of my amazing cycle instructors. That's how I listen to my body. I And I, I was mentioning to you in our pre-podcast chat, I set my new personal best of 12 miles on the bike on Saturday. I was telling my trainer, his name's Brian Blessing. I call him Blessing. I told him, I'm like, I wasn't baking brownies on the bike, right? Like I was working and I felt so much better. A doctor friend of mine actually said, you should try to break a sweat three times a week because that's as effective as any antidepressant medication. And I'm such a like naturopath and the world is so stressful right now. So my mindset is to pay attention to my, my, when my emotions are consuming me and make choices that benefit my body. Working out has always been the go-to for me to manage my mental health in positive ways. I, I just tell people, sometimes you have to turn off your brain, right? Stop fucking thinking and start feeling and then follow that into more productive and beneficial choices that I think can help you stay healthy and heal if you need to. Oh, holy smokes. You know, I 100% agree with you on the bike thing. Yes. Yes. Sometimes you need you need those endorphins. You need to sweat it out. Yeah. That's huge for shifting mindset. Yeah. my um, So Blessing was telling me, he's going to laugh that I'm talking about this, but he was telling me also recently how important it is to get uncomfortable in life. And that really stayed with me because Going back to my earlier comments, I try to listen when someone's teaching me and to push yourself to feel uncomfortable is an opportunity for growth. And I think when I'm on the bike, it allows me to just kind of close my eyes and try to elevate like for those 45 minutes. Um, He's also talked about going to a, a dark place, which sounds ominous, but it's kind of this quiet spot where you tune out the world and you just focus inward. And I've done that on the bike as well. And I find it restorative, especially in a world that's so noisy and there's so much zooming and webexing. And the bike again is, it's where I go to self-soothe and the world makes sense to me after a ride. You know, what's so interesting about that. And I, I feel everything you're saying, uh, yes, is that we usually have this crazy, insane, loud music while we're doing this, but you still can go in and you're inside of yourself and it's quiet in there even though it's blaring in your ears and it, it, it's like insanely loud music lends itself to that somehow. Right. I agree. I totally have felt what you have described and that's my mindset. That's how I survive harder days. And, you know, there's so much uncertainty in my career around teaching, for example, 
And right now I'm in person, but who knows? And it's those moments on the bike that save me. They help me sleep better. They help me let go of control. So I think everyone should find that. I mean, I think, I know this is going to sound probably very Pollyanna, but I have maintained since the beginning of COVID and quarantine, this is a period for all of us to get to know ourselves better. And COVID has brought out the best and the worst in human behavior. And there's no richer opportunity for you to understand, you know, where you've done the work, as they like to say, in like the self-help world, where your wounds are, like lean into that and try to come out, I think, a better version of yourself. I feel that way. Like there are people this summer that I can list, including Blessing, who have helped me see and grow my own strength. So I'll give you an example. I have like issues in my right shoulder from old injuries and a lot of typing. And so I talked with Blessing about it in a workout recently, and I could tell the difference when I was lifting weights, he's a CrossFit trainer, that my right side is weaker. So for me, that's awareness, but I'm also using an opportunity to build my strength. And when you build your strength physically, you build your strength mentally. To me, this is again, a choice that I make every day, You know, thinking back to my research platform, it's really about agency where you have it in your life and you cannot do this alone. You have to walk life with your village. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. That right there has been something that in quarantine in isolation has just boomed or been so, I've been so awakened to more than I was before, for sure. I personally end up doing so much better if I have these check-ins with people, with my village, with other people who care, especially. I mean, honestly, that's why I'm starting a podcast in a pandemic because Talking to other people who care deeply about things fuels me instead of, I know we've probably all been around folks who are frankly mailing it in or maybe just want to tell you to relax and not care so much. So yes. And and you, you just feed off of each other. You know, you boost each other up, right? Yeah. I mean, I want people in my life who are going to hold me accountable to higher standards. And that's what I do for anyone around me. I mean, I get teased a lot, especially in Vegas, about how I talk because I talk so much like a professor. It's just the way I'm wired. But those conversations are enriching my life. And I know that's happening for the people around me. And so I always say you have a choice about who you're going to associate with. I mean, you don't pick your family as we've talked about, but I think everyone listening should evaluate where are the people in your life filling you with energy and where are they depleting you? Are they helping you feel more powerful? Are they telling you stories about powerlessness that you're internalizing? So in the research that I've done on the hip hop and rap music industry, I've looked at the experiences of video models and my co-author, Professor Christy Rogers from Marquette University and I, one of our conclusive statements from the data is that Powerlessness is about your environment, it's about your context, it's about your situation, it's structural. And we look at features like resource scarcity, obviously very timely, feeling isolated, as you mentioned, again, quite relevant. But we need as a society to stop describing people as being powerless because people are not powerless. They're in situations of powerlessness. And I get really intellectually mad again when someone says, oh, that person is powerless. No, they're in an environment, they're embedded in a structure where they might lack resource scarcity, 
but that doesn't automatically translate to being a powerless person. And the video models in our research who can distinguish between their external constraints and the internal dialogues they're telling are the ones that understand how to gain power. They're the ones who are building relationships with directors and producers that are non-sexual. They're the ones who become agents and book video models themselves, which is a way that they gain influence and control in this industry. And my favorite finding from this research is that one source of being in a powerless situation is that video models are often constrained by stereotypes. So people think they're hoes and sluts and bitches. Right. And we can come up with a list. Right. But some of the video models I've interviewed have talked about how they try to distance themselves from those stereotypes. And so I always encourage people to ask themselves, how are you breaking frames in your life? How are you rewriting stereotypes? How are you teaching people how to treat you? And so for me, nobody ever looks at me and thinks I know anything about rap. Nobody thinks I've ever done karaoke to Outkast or that I do hip hop classes still, like ratchet hip hop. But that's fun to me because then when I open my mouth or I start educating them, their minds are blown. I just got invited today by a colleague who's a communications professor at UNLV. You're going to love mm -hmm. this. She is a graduate student who's doing a qualitative research project by looking at YouTube videos of rap battles and wordplay. And I yes. get to be an external committee member, which means I'm outside her school as a business school professor. How awesome is that? Uh, yes, that's badass. <laughs> that's my identity. And I, yes. I mean, yeah, I, this, I'm like, I own this shit. You want to talk about rap? Please, let's start. Hell yes. This is, oh, I love it. That just fills my soul with joy hearing that and seeing the joy in your face, honestly. And it, it makes me think of, I am so delighted every time I see an Instagram story from you <laughs> when it's literally like a video of your dogs or a video of whatever you're doing. And then you've got some, you know, like ratchet rap, you know, hip hop, like WAP song or something <laughs> yes she's so on brand like this is rap this is, and hip -hop is an integral part of my life and I grew up listening to Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. and Mob Deep and then this summer I've learned so much from Blessing in our training sessions about rap and I feel even more intrigued by the industry and the power dynamics and you have to find your jam, you know, you have to find that music that lights you up and makes you feel like invincible. And the, the whack controversy cracked me up because I'm 42. Like I grew up listening to Trina, Lil' Kim, Foxy Brown, Kia, my neck, my back, my goodness. Like yeah. the whack discussion is, is nothing like novel for right. those of us that know these female rappers. One of my co-authors texted me and said, did you know NPR did a study on uh, a story on WAP? And I said, yes. So it's, I'm glad that there's controversy and dialogue because I think that's generative. It's how we learn from each other. Yeah. And I mean, it must, I mean, maybe just the controversy is that there's the internet, right? Or there's, I don't know, more people are hearing it, I guess, or people are doing TikTok dances to it. I don't know. But it's, yeah, I agree. I think it's awesome. And side note, let's swap spin class uh, playlists because that'll be fun. Yeah, I, um, as you know, and your listeners can hear, I'm hoping to train to be a spin teacher in the new year, world events pending. And I want to burn the ears off of the people that come to my class and do the dirtiest ride possible. And <laughs> I've already started accumulating songs and it, 
it's like, I feel overjoyed. <laughs> I, yeah, that just makes me, I can't wait till I can, you know, hop on a plane, go to Vegas and go to your class. Yeah. Yep. And I don't mess around on the bike. Like I literally, I dance with the bike and the workout is, I mean, that's again, my time. So I want people to come and again, leave their thinking brains home and go into their feeling bodies and, Mm -hmm. and come out on the other side, feeling like they're invincible. Seriously. I think we, we probably relate on this level where I think we're both naturally introverted, right? There's something funny about an introvert going to a spin class and becoming like their true self. Like for sure. Just sort of like losing their mind with insane hip hop music on a bike. And I'm telling you, when you're in one of my classes, the endorphin woos, I'll just call them the endorphin woos because can't help it. Cannot help yeah. it. I love it. I was talking to Eric Nixick, the UFC gym manager on text. Um, I think it was yesterday or today. And one of my fitness goals is to try to start doing some either boxing or cardio kickboxing classes there because the UFC community doesn't mess around and they play a lot of rap at that gym. So to me, that's an experience to grow and yeah, just to learn from a community I don't interface with on a regular basis, but listens to good music. That's awesome. That's awesome. So Dr. Sharma, if there, if there was one person that you could say, and it might be tough to pick one, but someone that comes to mind that has had an impact on you or influenced who you are, whether it's the work you do or someone who inspires that caring. Yeah. There are actually two people if I'm allowed to answer it. So the first is um, one of my closest friends here in Las Vegas. His name is James Silvis. He's a peak performance coach. James has become my brother. We've known each other for about a little over a year and a half since I've been in Vegas for two years. We met shortly after I moved here. He's probably one of the most thoughtful, caring, intelligent, articulate people that I have, person that I've ever met. And the level of integrity with which he leads his life is outstanding. And Mm -hmm. James is one of these people that whenever I talk to him, I always feel listened to and heard. And he always helps me look at my work or my life in a direction that's positive and uplifting and healing. And he'll send me content to review. And I always feel like this is such a gift because I benefit from his expertise. And I hope people can find a James in their life. He's also very active on social media. So you can look up James Silvis. His wife, Amanda Silvis, does a lot around empowering women. I don't have family in Vegas. So to meet people like that who look out for me and care for me, I mean, it's not an understatement to say that meeting James has transformed my perspective on everything. And Mm. we write together, we're co-authors, we run workshops together, we do webinars. So I I feel like I have found an intellectual partner in the community, and I had no idea that would be part of the social fabric of my life here in Las Vegas. So I'm incredibly indebted and grateful to him. And my other person would be Christy Rogers, my co-author on my video model project. Christy knows how much I love her. She is my academic wife. 
I was trained in quantitative research methods and a few years into my career, I switched to qualitative research methods, which no one should do. And it slows down your research because you have to relearn a whole new method. But the opportunity to have collaborated with Christy, she has been my teacher. She has been my biggest supporter. Studying powerlessness is obviously a very emotional experience. And to know that she has had my back through various data collection opportunities that were crazy and is willing to sit down with me and talk to me about standards for publishing qualitative research. She called me brilliant the other day, which she doesn't realize how much that stayed with me. She, she is a ride or die bitch, if I can even say that. Yes, I, you can. <laughs> yeah, this woman has come into my life and been there personally and professionally, and she's the kind of person that I want to write with for the rest of my career. And finding good co-authors isn't easy, right? They're not like a dime a dozen because you have to, you know, interface and have convergence in terms of your personality, your work styles, how you think. And to work with someone who looks at your ideas thoughtfully, who provides critical feedback, that makes your thinking sharper and better and is looking out for your best interests. I just, I can't even describe the depth of the quality of our interactions. And I'm so fortunate to have her in my life. I call her my campaign manager because I was recently elected to a position within our national association. Ooh, congrats. Thank you. It was an honor. And I'm so really gratified to be engaged with like my field on a national level But to know that someone is going to ride or die for you is one of the most validating, comforting experiences. So I can tell you, um, I I was actually selected as the convocation speaker for UNLV this year. And I was the only faculty member, normally there's a slate, and it was myself and a doctoral student who studies COVID and the pandemic. And going into that process, it was such a life-changing experience because I felt so empowered. It was on TV and the production process was incredible. And Christy was there, lockstep with me, every part of the writing. And James actually was instrumental as well in providing feedback. And when I watched, I don't really talk about this publicly, but when I went back and I watched the talk, it's like a six minute TED talk. I mean, I, I had gotten my hair done, my makeup, my nails. I, I mean, I like went full out and I was mm-hmm. exhausted at the end of it and thought, how does Jennifer Lopez do it? <laughs> but I've, I've told the people closest to me in my life that when I did this talk and I was so held and so supported by people like James and Christy, Randy, I saw myself for the first time in 42 years. I saw the way I look. I saw the way that my words had impact. I could tell how receptive the world would be to the ideas that came out of my mouth. And there's no one else in my field that could have stood up and done that talk. And the feedback I've gotten has been so positive. People have been complimenting my ability to translate the story of the video models grounded in research into advice for incoming students to UNLV and make it palatable to that student audience. And Mark Groves actually reminded me that this is a gift that I have to translate research for practitioners. So when people like Christy and James love you and look out for you and help you grow, nobody's opinion actually ends up mattering at the end of the day because you can sit in your own self-worth. And their, their support of me has been probably one of the greatest gifts of this year and in my lifetime. Oh my gosh. I'm going to cry. 
like that, that's incredible. And that makes me so, so happy to hear. I mean, you are lighting up when you're talking about it (laughs) because obviously you have so much love for these people and admiration and they clearly have it for you because you are valuable and you do have something to say. You have a lot of things to say. I mean, what better moment than that to look at your own self and be like, that's a badass bitch. Like, you know, it was one of my favorite songs, Bad Bitch Anthem (laughs) by Young M.A. I just... I, I mean, this is, again, the whole point of why I wanted to talk to you. We have to think about the stories that we're telling ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I've said this to women, especially the only person that gets to decide your worth and your value is yourself. And I have reached this point. I have this quiet stillness and this inner peace and I get rocked once in a while, but it's because of experiences like the convocation talk. It's because of people like James and Christy who hold mm-hmm. me down. And by the way, they don't always agree with me. They are not yes people. It's because of these experiences that I don't need to listen to anyone else's judgment. Of course, I'm open to feedback and I want to grow, but when I go to sleep at night, it's my my inner worth that comforts me and soothes me. And so I hope everybody can find this like self-realization or this actualization process that I'm experiencing because that's how you write your power story and that's how you overcome trauma and that's how you gain control and influence in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I have to say it, you are, you're around other people who care. You're around people who give a fuck. I think at least for me, that's, I found that that is key to holding onto that and not feeling like, you know, the only one who, you know, cares about the thing or whatever. You're around people who support you. And even if they don't agree, right? Like you said, even if they don't agree, even if it's not their thing, it's your thing. And they support you on that. And so they care about it. I was joking with Blessing, my trainer today, that one of the most, I think, impressive qualities in our like work relationship and, you know, discussions about mental and physical health is that when we talk about rap music, for example, because I joke he's my subject matter expert because he knows more about rap than anyone I've ever met, there's space that gets created when other people are willing to let you be who you are and to accept what you have to say, even if it's not what they think. Mm -hmm. And that's a really powerful determinant, I think, of any effective relationship. And it's something that I'm trying to practice more of, especially as a qualitative researcher, is how am I allowing people to express who they want to be, again, being heard, Um, and not feeling voiceless. So I I think these themes are timeless and they're timely with all that's going on right now around us. And you're a function of of who surrounds you. So choose carefully and choose thoughtfully and try to be the kind of person that you want in your life for the people around you. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I feel like you may have just answered the question that I was going to ask you next. But if you have something else, we'd love to hear it. If you had one piece of advice or one thing for people listening that they can either take action on or contemplate for what's going on in their own lives and who they are, what would that be? Yeah. One recommendation that I would have, which is very tactical, is I encourage your listeners to ask themselves, where is a deficit in their life that they need support? and to take one actionable step to fill that deficit. 
And this can mean going out of your network. It can mean reconnecting with old friends, families, neighbors. There's different support groups that exist. I have a colleague who tragically lost her husband years ago, and she had talked a lot about how much a grief support group changed her life. And it was a group of widows and widowers in particular. So I think it's critical to ask yourself, where do you want more? And then to figure out a baby step that you can take. So for me, developing my physical strength is a theme these days, as you've heard. And that's what led me to text Eric at Randy Couture's gym, because I knew that this is a space that I want to build into. Mm -hmm. And so I could contact someone who has the expertise and would make me feel safe and also is in charge of a community that I could join So I encourage people to thoughtfully ask themselves, what stories are they telling themselves at the end of the day? Where do you wish that you could have more and then hold yourself accountable to trying to try to move towards that? Baby steps adds up, add up too. It's not like you have to go figure out everything at the same time, but a lot of this is self-reflection, being aware and understanding your own needs, which I think is always a starting point for healthy interactions. Mm, So good. Oh, I love it. So good. Okay. So what's one thing that you have never done that you would like to try or you're curious to try? And you are one person I know who doesn't get to say skydiving (laughs) because that is off the bucket list. You know, I have to say it's a collaboration with Mark and Mm -hmm. it's for a number of reasons. So I'm an academic and I actually told him this the other day. And after I did this podcast with him, I felt so popular. And, you know, I, I, I'm in a university, like I spend most of my time with colleagues and co-authors and undergraduates, like Mm -hmm. that's my space. So for me to step out of my comfort zone and partner with him and the ways that we're collaborating on and brainstorming that first of all is is new and I'm excited about it, but it's different, right? It's not in my comfort zone. I'm also working with him on attachment theory and leadership, which is not what I would say is an area of expertise, but it's a topic that I care a lot about. And so if we launch these corporate programs online, (laughs) I feel like that's going to be a game changer in my career because he's such a high visibility influencer. Mm -hmm. So it's a stretch experience for me and it's it's allowing me to really own my skill set about translating research into language that's palatable and accessible for practitioners. And that's a hallmark of how I live. Like I'm intellectually curious. I want to grow. I, I don't really consider myself like the average woman, right? Like I, I, I think a lot. I'm, I'm reading and writing constantly. I'm talking and thinking. And, you know, this is the essence of how I like do my work. So to have an opportunity to partner with someone and to grow from that, I think is like the broader theme. And I, I would hope that your listeners can have experiences like that and, and find the Mark Groses around them to, to do what I'm describing. I mean, I mean, I'm an introvert as we're talking about, and I spend so much of my time reading research and writing papers, like to go out into the public and do something like this is it's, it's out of, out of like what I'm used to. <laughs> So I'm, I'm glad for the experience and really curious what it's going to feel like because it's way more public than I live my life typically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I personally feel like it's going to be awesome because first of all, you're already leaning towards being a spin instructor. And that, from my experience, is a huge step into that, if that makes sense, where you're 
I mean, you know this from standing in front of a bunch of students. It's just a little bit different of an environment, but you have, like, you have the expertise. You are an expert. Yeah. So this is, this is awesome. I'm so excited for you. I'm really grateful for all of what you're saying. And I feel so incredibly blessed to have the career and the job that I have and the people around me. It's, it's just a combination of a lot of really supportive and developmental factors that guide my growth and development every day. Mm, So awesome. I love it. So do you have, do you have a cause or an organization that you're really behind and you would love listeners to know about? It's interesting because I'm still getting to know the landscape here in Las Vegas. And I can tell you about an organization that my friend James Silvis is actually supporting, and it mm-hmm. actually ties back to some of what I've mentioned in my research interests. It's called the Embracing Project, and it's for women who have been trafficked in the sex industry. James is actually doing three marathons in 72 hours in November, and I'm looking right now very loosely for opportunities to join maybe a board for a nonprofit organization. I, my joke is I want to boss a CEO around because I study leadership and power. Um, <laughs> but I just encourage people to check out the Embracing Project because they're doing really thoughtful work. And sex trafficking is one of the most powerless situations, right, that you can be put into. So I want to give them a shout out and um, just highlight, I think, the transformative change they're really trying to bring for women who survive the industry. Mm. Incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thanks for James for introducing you to it. Oh my goodness. Three marathons. I know. Wow. That is, I would love to do that. Yeah. That is the one thing I have not been totally, I have not been keeping up with running during, I mean, it's a pandemic. We're in a pandemic, but we're also in wildfires in California. So yeah, it's not ideal running conditions outdoors. It isn't. So, Dr. Payal Sharma, where can we learn more about you or find out more or where can listeners dive into more of this research you're doing, find out more? I mean, I I know that you've got a lot of stuff in the works, so maybe that's not out yet, but where can we hear more about you? Yeah, I have a website. It's power.faculty.unlv.edu. It's a collection of my podcasts that I've done, resources that I've curated that have helped me throughout the years, and it has my skydiving video. So if folks want to go to that website, power.faculty.unlv.edu, that's where I'm putting all of my latest content, and um, I'll send you my convocation talk if you want to post it in the show notes. Oh my gosh, yes. To see. Please yes. compliment the fake eyelashes because it was the first time I wore them. All right, done. Done. I already know they look amazing. Well, I saw pictures. I know they look amazing. And yes, that will go in the show notes. Your website will go in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining me today, talking to everybody and sharing why you give a fuck. We need more people like you. Thank you. It's been an honor and I'm so happy to support your podcast and wish you all the best with it. Whoa, right? I totally would have transitioned that conversation over with Bad Bitch Anthem by Young M.A., but, you know, licensing and whatnot. So apparently, power and the feeling of powerlessness 
is a huge determinant in the outcomes of every realm of our lives. We can't escape that shit. One of my very favorite parts of this conversation and where I think Dr. Sharma's true gives a fuck self shines through is in her formulating research-backed ways to, as she says, grow forward. So trauma happens, but then asking the questions like, what does one do with that? Where does one go from there? That's what she's doing. She isn't just going to research the thing, folks. (laughs) She's going to give us tactics for being better and catalyzing that growth. What a woman. The difference between resilience and post-traumatic growth that Dr. Sharma mentioned really stood out to me. Resilience being defined as something we bounce back to versus growth meaning bouncing forward because you can never go back to what or where you were. It means work, but I'll take growth over resilience, please. This has me thinking about this concept in terms of this pandemic or the most current occurrences of police brutality and how so many people want to quote unquote go back to normal. I think I'm pretty behind the idea that normal wasn't so great for everyone. So why don't we strive for some post-traumatic growth as a society, as a people? With good humans like Dr. Sharma as attentive or expert companions, surely we could pinpoint lessons learned from these traumatic events. And it sounds like ultimately the power stories we tell ourselves as we go about these lives we lead could be a key way of a collective healing as well. And as Payal so eloquently points out, at the end of the day, we are the only ones who get to decide our worth and value in this world. How's that for a power story? And obviously a big part of this is surrounding ourselves with folks who practice that same growth-mindedness and are hopefully also actively making moves to seek out support for the parts of their lives that they feel have deficits. I agree with Dr. Sharma wholeheartedly. Baby steps do add up. Also, I cannot wait to nerd out on both her written collaboration on the intersection of trauma and character and the collab she has in the works with Mark Groves. Yeah, those are going to be real good. All right, that's it for now. I hope you got as much out of this chat with Dr. Payal Sharma as I did. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about her, her work, or supporting women who have been trafficked via the Embracing Project, all the info you need is in this episode's show notes. Thanks again for tuning in, beautiful people. Keep giving a fuck. Keep being you. And remember, as always, there's no such thing as caring too much. You, 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 you care too much. You, 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 you care too much. You, 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 you care too much. People who give a fuck, people who give a fuck, yeah. You care too much.